Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture reading, we're going to look at Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Okay, this is God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you just for uh, this time that we can uh, hear from you. And uh, I guess we don't want to make it uh, overly complicated, but we want to uh, pursue what you have to say to us through your word. So speak to us through your spirit. Speak to us through your word. Uh, give us conviction of heart. Uh, give us uplifting of heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So as I said, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, we're going to start a little series uh, for the season of Advent, but I think technically Advent starts next Sunday. So today is not the start of the series. Today is kind of like a pre-Advent kind of sermon. And uh, there's this like historic Episcopalian church um, called Grace Church. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's like um, it's in the same neighborhood. And for many years, uh, the church was served by a priest named Fleming Rut- Rutledge. And she was known to actually give some really great sermons, especially Advent sermons. And I've read a couple of her books, and her books are, are fantastic. And I think she teaches like a, a preaching class uh, to folks like at a, some kind of seminary. Um, but a couple of years ago, you know, she decided to publish uh, some of her, her writings and her sermons specifically on the topic of Advent. And uh, she kind of had like a reputation, as I said, for like preaching great Advent sermons. So like some of my pastor friends would sometimes like go and listen to her preach, uh, you know, after their service, if they had like an evening service or if vice versa switched. I, I don't know how the timing worked, but they would want to um, hear what she had to say during the Advent season. So uh, you know, this year I thought, hey, she published the book on it. I'm going to try to read it. So I started reading it. And uh, I think I'll, you know, hopefully share some of her uh, insights on the Advent season in the coming weeks. I will say, just reading the introduction, it wasn't quite uh, what I expected for Advent. Uh, But for today, what I thought we would do is, you know, there's two intersecting themes that I I think is good to reflect on, especially in an Advent season, which uh, is this, waiting and hope, those two themes. And if you think about the nature of hope, there is a future orientation to it, which means that it assumes that there's always going to be some kind of period of waiting in relation to hope. Even when we use the word hope, we say things like, you know, I hope I get a nice bonus at the end of the year. I hope uh, I'll know some people at this party. I hope that at this party they're going to serve some cake. And even when we use hope in that way, there's this future orientation that assumes that we're going to have to wait and see whether the very thing that we hope for actually comes to fruition. Hope has a very, very important role to play in our lives, and without hope, I think what happens is the entire world looks bleak. The entire world looks dark. Without hope, it's very hard to live very meaningfully in the presence. And that's why I think hope and despair are actually kind of these, like, close cousins. There's this American playwright uh, named Thornton Wilder, and uh, I think he puts it so well. He said this, 
Hope is a project of the imagination, but so is despair. Despair all too readily embraces the ills it foresees. Hope is an energy and arouses the mind to explore every possibility to combat them. And what is he saying is this. Basically, hope and despair are, um, you know, they largely have to do with how do you imagine the future to be? And when you are in despair, you're probably imagining the future to be very bleak, which leads to like the sense of hopelessness. Nothing good is going to happen in the future. But when you have hope, there is a strength that will enable you to endure hard times in the present. And when you don't have hope, that's when, that's when people kind of give up, give up on life. Psalm 130, it takes us from a place of despair to the, a place of hope. And that's why I, I love this psalm. I'm not the only one that loves this psalm, by the way. Uh, psalm 130 is like a very popular psalm in church history. It was uh, Martin Luther's favorite psalm. This guy named John Owen, who's a Puritan theologian, he wrote like over 300 pages on this one psalm, which I didn't read. Uh, but it really is like a very beautiful psalm for a variety of reasons. And so as we look at the psalm, uh, we're going to see what it has to tell us about hope. First, I think the psalm tells us why we need hope. And right from verse 1, the writer says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And the writer is like in a pretty uh, deep state of despair. And even though it's not explicitly say, uh, stated, I think the assumption here is that he is in despair because of his sin. And when he says something like, out of the depths, the imagery is supposed to kind of convey someone who's like drowning in the sea or drowning in the ocean. And in biblical imagery, the sea is a place that signifies death and judgment. And so what he's doing is he's crying out to God to rescue him from his sin. He is here drowning in his despair. And I think that's such an appropriate uh, picture, uh, the picture of drowning in the sea. It's such an appropriate picture or metaphor for the condition of the human heart. I hear that uh, if you ever have an experience of drowning in the water and you have this like lifeguard that comes out to rescue you, the safest thing to do is actually to do nothing. It's just to kind of like yield and let yourself be rescued. Uh, but oftentimes what happens is people get scared and people start to panic. And when you start to panic and you're trying to stay afloat yourself, you kind of flap your arms and like you actually make it more dangerous for yourself and you make it more dangerous for the lifeguard. But that instinct to keep yourself afloat when a lifeguard is trying to come and save you and rescue you is ultimately the very thing that will endanger your life. It increases the risk that you will bring yourself down. And once that person kind of yields and begins to trust that the lifeguard is there to save them and yields to the lifeguard, well, they get saved by the lifeguard. And I think that's a great picture, a great illustration for how the Bible sees our sin condition, uh, how the Bible sees our hearts. Sin is simply more than just doing bad things or bad deeds, but sin is this deep-seated desire or need for autonomy. And it's that instinct to keep ourselves afloat on our own, not realizing that we'll eventually drown ourselves because of that autonomy. Uh, there's a book I read a while back, and the author, he's trying to help us understand like this concept of, of hell and judgment, uh, especially in a kind of culture that we live in. And you know, when I was in college, I remember this distinct conversation I had with somebody, uh, and he was very, uh, you know, I was like, uh, it was like Passion Week, and then like some college students had like tables, and like I guess people would kind of come up and you would talk about Christianity and talk about faith and religion. Uh, I don't know if having college students ban those tables are the greatest idea, but uh, you know who knows. So anyway, this guy comes up and he's like, 
uh, you know, do you believe like in hell? I was like, uh, yeah, I, I believe in hell. And then he's like, well, uh, I have, you know, my uncle, he, he served in the war and he sacrificed a great deal uh, for his country. He was a very good and honorable man, but he didn't believe in God. Are you saying God's going to judge him? And that, that's like a very difficult question to, <laughs> to receive as a college student. And I didn't really know how to respond. I was like, yeah, I, I think so. I don't know. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, he did not appreciate that answer, uh, said a couple bad words to me and uh, walked away. Uh, today, if someone were to ask me that question, I think the answer I would say is, well, I think the answer is yes, but it's not the reason for why or the reason for why it's yes is not actually the reason you might think. It's not that your uncle is a bad person in comparison to other people. In fact, I would say he sounds like a better person than most people because of what he did and how he lived. But at the end of the day, God doesn't judge us based on which one of us is better than the other person, but he judges us ultimately based on whether we're uh, willing to let him save us when it comes down to it. Uh, I read this book back uh, a while back, and in this book, the author puts it this way. He says, Paul Pot, who's, uh, if you're familiar with history, Cambodian history, he was the architect of Cambodian genocide. He says, Paul Pot and my sweet grandmother, who wouldn't hurt a fly, stand together before the great physician, and his question is not, which one of you was better? But his question is ultimately this, will you let me heal you, right? Will you let me save you? So it's not about who's better in comparison to other people because by God's standards, everybody falls short. The real question is, are we going to be that person drowning in the water, yielding and allowing ourselves to be saved by Jesus? Those who refuse to be saved by Jesus, those who say, I am going to save myself, will inevitably end up drowning. And it's not because God wants that. God ultimately wants us to be with him, to be saved. He wants to show us grace. He wants to forgive us. That is his desire. But the reason that happens is because of human pride, which refuses to allow God to save us and to rescue us. That is why Jesus is constantly rebuking religious Pharisees. And even though their external behavior may have, quote-unquote, looked better than uh, that of, for example, the adulterous woman, inwardly, the religious Pharisees are the ones who refuse to be rescued while the adulterous woman welcomes it, right? And we're drowning in our sin, and the way out is not found in ourselves. It's not found in let me swim myself to shore, but the way out is to yield and to let God to uh, lift us up and save us. And that's essentially what verse 3 tells us. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And of course, that is a rhetorical question. Nobody's supposed to raise their hand and say, I could stand, right? Uh, the implication is nobody can actually stand if God were to mark our iniquities. If God marked our iniquities and if we were ultimately responsible for saving ourselves, then that is actually the real reason why someone ought to be in despair because then there would be no hope at all. Who are we? What are we to be able to save ourselves? There is no hope found in us because we just cannot do it. But we do have hope, and the psalmist has hope. Why? Because that hope is not found in ourselves. This hope is not even found in other people, but where does the psalmist find hope? And according to verse 7, hope is found in the Lord. But let's examine what it means when the psalm says hope is found in the Lord. The first thing we can say is that hope is possible ultimately because of God's character. 
And there's a few things that we learn about who God is in this psalm. First thing he says is he's someone who hears our pleas for mercy. That's from verse 2. He's someone who can hear our pleas for mercy, which means there's an open door always instead of a dividing wall. And can you imagine what it would be like for, uh, you know, we have all these like little toddlers like running around and uh, if they were to cry out to their parent and their parent just like puts on these headphones and turns their back and how, you know, how difficult that would be, how heartbreaking that would be. But God doesn't do that. He gladly hears our pleas for mercy. And if anything, the reality is that unlike the toddler, we are probably not ones to cry out. But we are the ones who turn our backs to God and we say, I'll just deal with it myself. The second thing we learn here is he's someone who forgives from verse 4. I know uh, some of us, maybe all of us, know what it's like uh, to hold a grudge. Grudge is basically when we choose to remember a sin or an offense and we hold it against somebody uh, for a very, very, very long time. And as uh, offended as we might be for the thing that was done against us, given the nature of God's holiness, uh, the reality is he should actually be the most offended by any sin that we commit against him, right? And yet he doesn't hold a grudge against us. There is forgiveness with God and because he does not mark our iniquities. He lets it go. And we'll talk about how he lets that go a little bit later. The third thing with respect to God's character is this. He's also someone who loves us. His steadfast love for us is one of the reasons why we can have hope. The word steadfast love is a special word uh, in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's hesed. It's a word that you can't fully capture in the English. And sometimes uh, in the English translation, it's going to be translated as like steadfast love, like here, unfailing love, uh, kindness, loving kindness, mercy, faithfulness, loyalty, right? All of these are uh, English ways to try to capture the meaning of that word. Um, I would say that, me- that word means all of the above, right? It's this kind of unfailing love as displayed by God in terms of his commitment to his covenant, his commitment to be uh, our God and for us to be his people. God is so committed to his covenant that he, made, that he made with us that not even our sin, not even our desire for autonomy can thwart his plan to redeem us, to save us, to bring us to himself. And that's why we have hope. And this brings us to the idea that hope is found in God's promise. Verse 5 where the psalm says, In his word I hope. Now, it's important to see what quote-unquote right, word means in this context. And it's not actually uh, the easiest thing to figure out. Uh, some people think it refers to the Torah, the book of the law. Some people think it's uh, God's answer for uh, the prayer for mercy. Uh, I think it probably has to do with God's covenant promise that he made with the people of Israel. And what God promises to Israel, to his people, is redemption, is salvation. When we get to the New Testament, these two aspects, mercy forgiveness and love along with the promise of redemption they they come together in jesus christ in jesus we see the depth of god's mercy the depth of his forgiveness the depth of his love when he dies on the cross for us jesus you know in a way he's our lifeguard but he's not just the lifeguard who saves us but he's a lifeguard who would actually experience drowning himself so that we might be saved you know, we started talking about forgiveness earlier, and with forgiveness, there is always a cost. 
always. Um, whenever there is an offense, someone's always going to have to pay the cost of that offense. And that's why forgiveness is described as a debt in the Bible. When you make that decision to forgive someone, you're saying, I'm going to absorb the cost of that offense. I'm going to take the injustice and the pain upon myself. And I'm not going to hold it against that person. And some of these cuts, for some of us, run pretty deep. Maybe it's like a, a family relationship or a family offense. Maybe if it's a friend, right? Some of these things run very deep. And that's why it's hard to forgive because when we say, I'm going to forgive and not hold it against you, what it's saying is this. You know, what happened to me is not fair and I don't like it and it's painful, but I'll bear it and I won't hold it against the other person. That's essentially what Jesus does for us when he forgives us. He says, I will not hold it against you, but I will bear it myself. I will bear it myself on the cross. I will take the judgment myself on the cross and I will no longer hold it against you. And when we think about that, when we think about his love, when we think about his mercy, when we think about that, our acceptance before God, our joy, our security in him is not contingent upon us saving ourselves, but it's contingent specifically on what God did for us in Jesus Christ, that is when we can have hope. You know, in Jesus, that promise, right, the word, uh, put your hope in God's word, put your hope in God's promise, it's, it's fulfilled in Christ. What does that mean? If you ever... Uh, you know, the context of this psalm is interesting. You know, redemption meant being freed from captivity and in their context being freed from captivity from foreign rule. Uh, what does it mean from us? Well, if you, if you ever had the experience of, I don't know, getting your car towed and, you, you know, you have to go to that, that towing place <laughs> and you have to redeem your car from captivity and you got to pay money to, to redeem that car. Like some of us are like that car and we have been towed and we are in captivity. Uh, how so? Well, we're captive. We're held captive to so many things in life. We're held captive to maybe our regrets and our past mistakes. We're held captive to a kind of relationship or a desire for one. We're held captive to uh, our careers or the way we want things to go in our lives. We're held captive to other people's judgment of us. We're held captive to even our own judgments of ourselves. And therefore, we, we actually, in our life experience, are living in captivity. And we need one who will set us free. Jesus is a redeemer who frees us from captivity so that these things no longer need to enslave us and hold us captive anymore. Jesus has set us free and given us new life to the degree in which we and the degree in which we appropriate that new life depends on how we orient our sense of hope. Okay, this is this is all great head knowledge, right? But sometimes we just don't feel it. What does it actually look like to live with hope? What is the fruit of hope? I think one of the things that we see in the psalm is it's an ability to actually wait for it, to wait for the Lord. There's this common refrain in verses 5 and 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. It says it twice. Imagine being a guard and you're standing watch all night long. 
And because you're up all night standing watch, you know, you probably get very tired and you probably get very sleepy. And you're, all you're waiting for, you're anticipating, my shift will be over once the sun comes up, right? Once morning comes, then I can finally get some rest. And as long as, and as tiring as that night might be, the guard knows this, the guard knows morning will come and the sun will rise again. And that's, that's the type of waiting that is supposed to characterize someone with hope. You see, Christian hope is not a frivolous hope where you hope something will happen, like I hope there's cake at the party. Well, there might not be cake at the party, and then you'd be disappointed. There's as much certainty in Christian hope as there is certainty that the sun will rise the next morning for that guard because of who God is. Christian hope, I would say, is probably even more certain as the coming of the morning because uh, I bet some of you mil- uh, like middle schoolers are thinking, well, there are days like the eclipse where the sun doesn't rise. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Uh, but you know, yeah, you were thinking that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, what God has done for us is so certain that, yeah, we can anticipate the rising not of the the solar sun, the rising of the resurrected sun, who will resurrect us with him and create the world anew. And that's our hope. But I tell you, it's not easy to hold on to that hope, uh, especially from a life experience perspective. And uh, we live in a generation where uh, we have access to every source of bad news going on in the world <laughs> than any other generation. And uh, the more news you read, uh, the more uh, despair you feel. Uh, the more you're exposed to the brokenness of the world, the harder it is to hope, right? And you just kind of feel darkness everywhere. Well, if, if that's the kind of despair that we go through and we feel, and that's just kind of on a macro level. I know all of us have like, personal experiences of that as well. Uh, Let me just give you one practical application for, I think, how practically Christian believers, we remain hopeful. And, uh, you know, because I don't want to give you the impression that having hope is just kind of mental assent. And, you know, I talked about the imagination before. Um, I don't want to give the perspective that it's just like, well, let me just think positively and have hopeful thoughts. I actually think there's a very practical way in which we can cultivate hope. And you know what that practice is? I actually think it's repentance. And most people wouldn't think about that. If you're feeling hopeless and if you're feeling despair, I think the way to feel hopeful again is actually going to be in repentance. Why? Because repentance is a way to be reminded that our hope is in Jesus. Repentance is a way to be reminded that we are weak, we are powerless, that we have failed, but that there is a Savior who loves us, who is merciful to us, who forgives us, and who will give us life. I tell you, there are plenty of times where I have felt hopeless. Uh, I think my personality is probably actually kind of geared towards that. Uh, I'm a little bit pessimistic uh, in life, my uh, favorite book in high school was Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> that's, that's just my personality, right? Some of you are a little bit more positive, and uh, it would be great to, to experience that and to be you, but that's not me. 
Uh, I've gone through many seasons of feeling hopeless. Uh, I've gone through many seasons, especially with like the way uh, you know the church in the West has been going, uh, of feeling hopeless about church as well. Thinking about uh, the influence and power of consumerism. Yeah, I think about these things, right? Uh, it's like so hard to resist. Or thinking about, um, you know, in the past decade or so, all these like scandals and, and church leaders or, uh, you know, just among people in general, this growing apathy towards Jesus. And yet, even in those seasons of hopelessness, I just say this by personal experience, I think it's always been... Uh, seasons of repentance that has brought me out of that and many times actually repenting um, with folks in this church I know in the past repenting with uh, some of the elders Uh, it's weird we don't think about repentance as a way to facilitating hope again I think that's the key because if we're repenting the way we ought to be repenting it should focus less on uh how bad we are maybe we start there but eventually it should direct us to how good god is and what he has done and it's not that things necessarily change circumstantially but what happens is we become reminded of who god is in a very real i guess experiential way when we get reminded of the certainty of his promises the goodness of his character the power of his love I think hope gets renewed friends this is a a season of advent this is I think a season where people generally are like more positive and in a good mood and Christmas music puts makes people happy and festive and all those kind of things Um, you know if I continue reading this book by Fleming Rutledge she doesn't actually seem very positive. She seems to focus a lot on God's judgment. So we'll see how the next couple of sermons go <laughs> for the Advent season. But uh, um, I will say, uh, you know, th- those things are nice and nothing against those things. Uh, but I will say there is something better and deeper in the meaning of Advent and in the meaning of Christmas and the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Uh, God, we um, we pray that you would remind us uh, of light. And you give us this image of light and darkness. Uh, you know, for example, in the Gospel of John. And if there's one thing that can characterize us as your people... It should be that we are a people of hope because we are a people of the light. And yes, you call us to be light in this world, but not a light that shines by our own will. But you call us to be mirrors to reflect the light that Jesus Christ shines upon us. And in order to do that, we have to see the light that Jesus shines. And so help us renew our hope Uh, in the midst of all kinds of uh, bad news and in the midst of all kinds of personal despairs, remind us that we have a deep hope in Christ. Help us to be characterized by this hope. In Jesus' name we pray.